The Apostle Paul writes this, Philippians 2, starting in verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the Word of God. Good evening, uh, Summit Church. Like Brian said, my name is PT, and I am not one of the pastors here. Um, but I actually, like Brian mentioned, am on uh, staff with the church. I'm not sure what that is. I'm not really used to these things. But uh, I'm on staff with the church, and basically uh, my role with the church is to really cultivate and develop a deeper culture of mission and worship within this community. Um, And so I'm really, really excited to be able to do that. But for those of you who don't know me, just so that you don't feel like there's this complete and utter stranger getting up here and kind of talking to you for 30 minutes, I just wanted to tell you a little bit, just real briefly about myself. Um, Yeah, my name's P.T. I've been married for a little over three years to my beautiful wife, Rachel, who's sitting over there. Uh, We have a babe on the way, um, so we will be parents, actually, and just a couple months now, and we're really, really excited about that. Um, I'm also actually really, really excited that I am also in my last year of grad school at Denver Seminary, uh, where I am being trained and equipped, basically, uh, to become a pastor. And uh, both Rachel and I are really passionate. We feel like God is calling us, ultimately, uh, to engage with people who don't know Jesus. Um, and, and, and we feel like eventually where that will lead us is um, overseas, working with unreached people groups, and um, interestingly enough, uh, we actually just got back from being overseas less than a week ago. Um, Lots of you guys know and were actually praying for us as we were over uh, in Macedonia working with a predominantly Muslim people group, the ethnic Albanians in Macedonia, and the trip was just really, really phenomenal. So I wanted to just say thank you to you guys, those of you who were praying for us. We definitely uh, felt the potency of that prayer, and we had a really phenomenal trip, so uh, thanks a lot for your prayers, and going overseas is really great, but it's kind of crazy, because when Brian came to me a few months ago and asked if I wanted to preach, I was like, immediately thinking, yes, yes, dude, that'd be great, I'd love that opportunity, that would be phenomenal, but little did I remember that less than a week before I'd have to get up here and preach to you guys, I would be overseas in a completely different country. So I've just been like fighting fatigue and jet lag and all these different things this week so that I can get up here and, and really preach God's, words to, preach God's word to you. And um, it's crazy too because to get up in front of you, I just want you all to know, um, as, as me speaking to you uh, as my church community, like I don't, I don't take this lightly. Um, I, I, tr- I, I consider it a tremendous opportunity and privilege to be able to get up here and speak to you all. I know that many of you uh, are older than me and have more life experience than I do. I know that uh, many of you, though, are also younger than me or my same age, but whom I deeply respect. And so I just want you to know that I consider it a tremendous privilege and honor, really, to just be able to be up here and, 
and preach and teach uh, God's word. So just as we open up, I just want to come before uh, the Lord myself and with you guys. So God, I just pray um, that you would use this time. I thank you for this opportunity and I pray, God, that you would just draw us to yourself, that you would soften our hearts, that we might be able to uh, just receive your word and that we might know who you are more deeply and, and, and have more clarity as to what you are calling us to do as a community uh, here in the city of Denver. It's in your name. Amen. Uh, so for the past month, like Brian said, our church has been uh, in a series in the book of Philippians called The Cause. What are you living for? And basically, we've been challenged over and over again to consider what is it that we prioritize most in our lives? What is it that we value most in our lives? And what Paul continues to push us to is to realize the beauty and the joy that comes with prioritizing Christ and his gospel. He says, the only thing that matters is the gospel and to live lives that are worthy responses to that gospel. And so he's going to do the same thing tonight as Brian just read as we dig into Philippians 2. He's going to come and do the same thing tonight, but uh, sort of giving us more understanding in that area. And what he says, and what we see, I believe, is that as we prioritize Christ, we are empowered by his gospel to live both lives of faithfulness and lives of mission. We are empowered by the gospel to live both faithfully and missionally. And when I use that word, missionally, what I mean by that, maybe you've heard that term kind of thrown around, or maybe you've never even heard that term, but when I, when I mean by missionally is that our lives are so consumed with and wrapped up with the very mission of God to make himself known. So that's what I mean with the word missionally. In the gospel, what we see is that the gospel empowers us to live both faithfully and missionally. And in fact, actually, as we, as we dig even deeper into the word, what we'll realize is that in many ways, it is our faithfulness that deeply impacts our effectiveness in many ways, it is our faithfulness both to God and with one another in community that deeply impacts our faithfulness, I mean our effectiveness, on living in mission in the world. And I've really been kind of just confronted with this uh, really over the past few months. I mentioned that I, I'm on staff here at Summit, but I also work at another job um, in, at a restaurant south of Denver called uh, Cafe Terracotta. And over the past couple months, I've really been getting into all these kind of crazy conversations really with some of my coworkers where we've been talking about just really weighty things. And with one uh, coworker in particular, um, we've just talked about like the nature of God. Who is Jesus? What do you do with the brokenness of the world? And, and at the end of the day, whether I clearly articulate and explain more or less uh, these sort of topics, at the end of the day, my colleague continues to come to me and say, look, I get where you're coming from. I understand where you're coming from. But at the end of the day, I don't want to be a Christian because ultimately I don't want to be associated with people who call themselves Christians. And maybe, maybe you can relate with that on some level. Whether you follow Jesus or not, many of us in this room have probably had a relationship with someone who claimed to be a Christian when we saw the way that they lived their lives, it just caused us to like step back and say, whoa, like you are just, he was just so hypocritical or she was just ridiculously judgmental 
where they just seem so out of touch with the realities of life in the 21st century. And so we're confronted with this reality that in many ways our faithfulness impacts our effectiveness. Our faithfulness both to God and with each other deeply impacts our effectiveness on mission in the world. And so tonight, as we dig in Philippians 2, in order to understand that more clearly, we need to know three things. And this is sort of where we're moving tonight, if you're taking notes, or really, even if you're not, that's sort of where we're moving tonight. First, we need to know what it is that we're actually called to. Second, what this calling looks like. And third, why this calling matters. So that's where we're moving tonight. What we're called to, what this looks like, and why ultimately uh, this matters. So if you look down at Philippians 2, verse 12, starting in verse 12 with me. We'll, we'll, we'll find out what it is that we're called to. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, some uh, in the history of the church have believed that the key to Christian living is quite simply to do nothing. The logic follows that because salvation is from God and because we can't as people add anything to that salvation, we're, we're called to do nothing. We're called to just sit back with this mentality of passivity and silence and to really just do nothing. It's a mentality that I believe actually cheapens grace, claiming that we can receive the benefits of salvation without realizing the implications of that salvation on our lives. And the problem with that is, is that when we look at this passage and others like it, and as Paul even begins this very text that we're looking at tonight, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. We are called to work hard within the context of salvation. So I don't think that you can justify sort of this passive mentality in the context of salvation. But, but the question is... I can't just say that. The question is, what does it mean, really, to work out your own salvation? What does that mean for us to work out our salvation? Because that can seem kind of confusing, right? I mean, if you've, if you've spent any time here at the Summit Church, we proclaim, we talk about, we preach about, we sing about the realities of grace. And we lift up the doctrines of grace, recognizing that humans can, cannot add anything to salvation. We, we celebrate the reality that salvation is from God. And so that really causes us to have to ask, like, what does that mean for us to work out our salvation? When we come to passage like this, we, I think we, it's appropriate to ask, is it grace or is it works? When you hear that language of work out your own salvation, you have to ask, is it grace or is it works? And I believe that what Paul points us to here is that there's actually a place for both grace and works within salvation. But don't get scared yet because what we have to know is the relationship between those two. We need to know, we need to know how these two stand in relationship with one another, both grace and works. So look back at the text with me. Verse 12. I don't know if you notice the language or not. 
but it says work out your salvation. It doesn't say work for your salvation. It doesn't say work to earn your salvation. It doesn't say work so that you might meet God halfway in salvation. It says work out your salvation. And that's really crucial for us to understand because what that does is it places our work within its proper context. We can understand our laboring and our striving in its proper context. You see, if I was to go and and, and give some counsel or advice to a married couple, and I told them, hey, go work out your salvation, I mean, not work out your salvation, but go work out your marriage. I'm not telling them that they need to go and say their vows before a pastor, that they need to walk over to uh, the courts and get some legal documents and get all those signed and have these marriage certificates. No, their, their covenant is already sealed. They are already married. What I'm telling them in that situation is that they need to go work hard and labor within the context of what is already true. They need to go work out within the context of that which is already true. And that's exactly what Paul says to us here. He says, you are already saved. That covenant is sealed. And we see that in the first, uh, really, 11 verses of Philippians 2. If you go look at that another time, our salvation is sealed because of the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, now we need to work out our salvation in light of that. And so, just to be really clear, The point that I'm making is not that we work hard in order to be saved. Oh yeah, it's even up here on the screen because it's that important. We don't work hard to be saved. We work hard because we have been saved. We don't work hard in order to earn salvation. We work hard because salvation has already been earned for us. See, we are definitely called to work hard. It is desperate that we know that we're not working in order to earn, but because salvation has already been earned for us. But here's the difficulty with that. See, every single person in this room is hardwired with a mentality and a tendency to work in order to earn. To work in order to earn the things that we have. And it comes at us from many different directions, but something that I think we all can kind of relate with is both the push from our culture as well as our nature. See, in our culture, we are constantly bombarded with, you need to work really, really hard in order to climb the ladder of success. If you want to be successful, you work really, really hard. You work hard in high school, taking AP classes, and then you go into college, you work hard, then you build your experience, build your resume, you go interview really well, and then at the end of the day, for the reward of your hard work, you get a job, right? This this even kind of plays out in relationships. If you want to have an amazing spouse, then you have to work really, really hard for that. I mean, I literally had to work hard against three other guys who were vying for the attention of Rachel in order to win her over. And I got to say, I'm really, really pleased with the outcome. But, but listen, we're, we're pushed that way from our culture, but it's not just our cultural disposition. It's actually also our very nature's disposition. We all have a natural tendency to earn the things that we have, sort of this natural pushback against receiving things for free because we feel like we have to do something. And I see this play out all the time as I'm working at the restaurant down south. And you've probably actually experienced this too. If you've ever gone out to eat with some of your friends, right? So you guys meet up, you're going out to eat, you're meeting, you guys have a meal, and then at the end of the meal, the server brings you the bill. bill. 
And if you're with anyone, if you're with any other person except for your parents, they set down the bill and there's this immediate squabble and fight and battle over who's going to pay that thing, right? I mean, literally, as I've worked at, at the cafe, I will literally sometimes be walking up and they see, oh, he's got the bill. And I'm walking over and you can just like see the fire in their eyes. And literally I've done this where with tables like that, I will literally just walk up and I'll take the bill and I'll hold it in the middle of the, I've done this before, I'm not lying. I hold it in the middle of the table and I just drop it and they go at it. (laughs) I mean, what is that? Like what is happening there? See, I believe that that is our very nature that just pushes back against receiving things for free because we feel we have to do something. And it's to such an extent, I've done this too before, to where even if you concede to let someone pay for your bill, you say, okay, fine. Like, you can pay for my bill. I don't want you to, but I'll let you pay for my bill. But let me at least just get the tip, right? Like, I've got to do something, so let me at least just get the tip. Jeez, I don't know what's going on with this thing. Um, And I bring all this up because we see this push from both our culture and our nature to work for the things that we for the things that we have, to work hard in order to earn the things that we have. And I bring this up really because I believe that this very tendency subtly or not so subtly creeps into our relationship with God. And the unfortunate thing about that is that is the exact opposite of the gospel. Because you see, God has come to us and he says, I see the brokenness, I see the junk, I see that you have accrued this debt as sinful humanity. And he says, I've got it. I will pay the bill. I will take care of that. In fact, I've sent my son Jesus to take care of that and to put that bill, that debt on his shoulders. He pays for that. You don't even have to get the tip. You're forgiven. Jesus has procured that in his life, death, and resurrection. But, but maybe you're out there saying, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm at least just going to try hard to be good to people and to respect others and to be kind to, to, to the people around me. And if that's you, if that's you who's saying, I'm just going to try hard to be good, I would, just, I would just ask you this question. And maybe you should just ask yourself this question. Like, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you mess up? Because you know what? You're right. We're not perfect. We do screw up. We get angry with our spouse or our roommate. We get so frustrated with our coworker because they're so lazy or their personality just rubs us the wrong way or we get ticked at our neighbors so we start trying to frustrate them because they've stayed up too late partying at night. I mean, we screw up and I believe that we need something or rather someone to pay for that. And I don't think it cuts it to just say, I'm going to try hard to be good and just hope it works out in the end. And so I would just point you guys to the good news of Christianity that says that though you could never be good enough, you can be forgiven. You can't possibly be good enough, but you can be forgiven because Jesus Christ has been good enough in your place. But I don't know if you guys notice this. If you go further down in verse 13, what we, what we notice and what we see 
is that the gospel doesn't actually just say that our bill has been paid by the person of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection. It doesn't just say that we're forgiven. Verse 13 also declares that we are empowered. Verses 12 and 13, it says, Work out your own salvation, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so if it wasn't clear enough that our work is based on the grace of God, Paul says, you can work out because it is God who works in. In fact, the word, that word right there, work, in the Greek, it's energeo. And I don't know if you could hear it or not, but that's actually where we get our word for energy or energize. And so it's God who actually gives us the very energy. It is God who energizes us to even be able to work and labor hard in the gospel. In fact, something that I found really, really helpful as I was looking at this passage, because sometimes I read this verse, I'm like, what the, what the heck does that even mean? God's, you know, at work in us, both to will and to work for it. What does that even mean? And so something that I found really helpful is if you look down at verse 13, kind of just follow along with me as I... kind of translate this in a way that I think would be really helpful. It brings out the Greek in sort of a way uh, that that would potentially be a way that we kind of talk in in, in the language that we use. So look at verse 13 and follow along. It says, work out your own salvation because it is God who energizes you or empowers you both to will or to desire as well as to work or to accomplish his good pleasure. It says, work out your own salvation because it is God who empowers you, who empowers us, both to have the desire for his ways, as well as to have the ability to actually accomplish his ways. And so we can work hard. We can labor hard in salvation because we know that the very basis of our work is the very grace of God. Friends, that is good news. We are both forgiven and empowered by God's grace to accomplish that which he's calling us to. We're not called to just sit back in laziness or to do absolutely nothing in the Christian life. Instead, we are called to labor intensely, to work hard within the context of salvation because we work hard not to be saved, but because we have already been saved. Saved. We work hard, not in our own strength, but in the very strength that God provides us. But so far, in these two verses, Paul has sort of remained like up here in his, in his imperatives, in his exhortation to us. He's kind of remained like very theological in the way he talks about it, but he doesn't just stay there. He doesn't just say, hey, go work out your salvation, have fun with that, let me know how that goes. No, he's extremely practical. And so he shows us exactly what that working looks like. And so that moves us actually to our second point, which comes from verse 14, 17, and 18. So as we move to our second point, we don't just see what we're called to, but also what it looks like. Verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then jump down with me to verse 17. Paul says, For even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. See, what we see from these verses is that what it looks like for us to work out our salvation is that what it looks like is us pouring ourselves out in community as grateful people. 
It looks like us pouring ourselves out in community as grateful people. Because so far, Paul has kind of said, like, here's what God has done for you in the person of Jesus. Here's what he's accomplished on your behalf. And so in light of that, don't complain. In the light of the beauty of the gospel, how could you possibly complain? You see, God has not withheld anything from us except for the very thing that we deserve. Namely, his judgment and wrath. And instead, he's put that on his son, Jesus. And he says, in light of that, you should be the most grateful people on the entire face of this planet. Do not grumble and complain. Because the remedy to a grumbling heart is a grateful heart. The cure to a grumbling heart is a grateful heart. And Paul, of all people, in verse 17, is saying, we should be the most grateful. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad, or I am grateful, and I rejoice or find joy with you all. See, do you know what happened when Paul did this? Do you know, actually, where Paul is as he writes um, this letter to the Philippian church? Paul, Paul was in prison. He was in prison. And I've never actually been to prison myself, but just going from imagination here, like you could grumble off that one for a pretty long time, right? Like, geez, I pour myself out for the sake of others. I labor hard for their progress in the faith. I'm pouring and draining myself for the person of Jesus. And this is where it lands me, in prison? And it's interesting because in other letters, Paul actually talks about some of the other things that he's gone through aside from prison. Some of the intense trials and suffering that he's experienced as he pours himself out for the sake of the gospel. And he could have easily grumbled. Like, man, I walk 20 miles a day. I never get to see my friends in community. Like, I get stoned all the time. I get beaten to the point of death. I get thrashed with rods. I'm adrift on the open sea. I've been shipwrecked several times. I can often not even sleep. I'm often hungry and tired and and not able to eat. And now I land up in prison for pouring myself out for Jesus? Paul could grumble. Man, he could complain, and yet he doesn't. And I believe it's because he is so grounded in, because Paul so realized the beauty and joy of Christ in his life. He so prioritized Christ in his life that he could endure the most intense suffering and hardship with joy and with gladness even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of your faith, I am grateful and I find joy with you all. And so, man, for those of you who have gone through some just really tough times, like for those of you who have poured yourself out, you've labored in response to the gospel, I just encourage you to take hope from this text if you've labored and poured yourself out for the gospel and feel like all you've experienced is the brokenness and the junk of the world and you've been just confronted by intense suffering as you've done that, I just want to encourage you with the example and the testimony of Paul. You can take hope that God is there, that he suffers with you, and in fact that he has suffered for you. 
And then for the rest of us, may we just be challenged by the testimony of Paul and by the example of Paul who could say that even though he's draining himself and being poured out for the sake of the gospel and enduring intense opposition and trial and suffering in the midst of that, and yet be glad and rejoice. May we be challenged by that, particularly in our culture that feeds on just this this lifestyle of comfort and ease. I feel that so desperately in the day-to-day grind of life so that we can be challenged by the testimony and example of Paul that when we're tempted to justify grumbling and complaining when the server at that restaurant last night was just so terrible or when we're tempted to just justify our grumbling and complaining when we're sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the way to the mountains because of all those dang tourists. Like, take comfort. Like, be challenged, rather. Maybe you don't take comfort in that, but be challenged by the reality of this intense suffering that Paul experiences as he pours himself out in community. And may we be empowered, really, by God's grace to not lose sight to not be distracted of what it means to pour ourselves out in community. That in line with Paul and even with with our Savior Jesus, we can pour ourselves out in community, even knowing that it's an arduous task, even knowing that it's wearisome, that it will cost you, it will drain you, but that it's worth every single ounce of energy that is spent. That you can be like Paul, grateful and full of joy in the midst of that. That in the midst of that, our grumbling hearts by the gospel can be exchanged for grateful hearts because of what Jesus Christ has done and continues to do in and among us. But as we kind of move, move on and, and continue to look at the text, one thing that I just wanted to point out, because I thought it was really, really cool and actually really helpful for me in feeling the weight of this text, is actually uh, noticing that the language in many ways here has so many overtones and allusions and references to the, to the people of Israel from the Old Testament. Like notice, look at verse 14. It says, do all things without grumbling and complaining. I don't know if... And the fact that I mentioned Israel, it's coming to your mind or not now, but do you remember what Israel did time and time again? God would come and in his miraculous grace, he would rescue them out of whatever oppressive and crappy situation they were in. He would rescue them by his grace. And time and time again, Israel would come and grumble and complain. And particularly, I think about the story of Exodus, where uh, Israel is sitting underneath the oppressive and burdensome yoke of slavery by the Egyptian people for generations. And God comes in in his miraculous grace through the ten plagues, through literally like parting an entire sea so that the people of Israel can get through while the Egyptian armies are on their, are on their heels. And yet, just a couple chapters later, after God's miraculous redemption and rescue of the people of Israel, just a couple chapters later, and actually in their history, just a couple months later, they resorted to grumbling and complaining. And in fact, they eventually grumbled to the point that God punished that generation to the wilderness instead of to the land that God had promised to them. And the interesting thing is that in Genesis 17, we see that 
Abraham and by extension Israel is called to be a blameless people. And even earlier in Genesis 17, we, I mean Genesis 12, we see that Israel is called to be a blameless people so that they might be a blessing to the people and the nations that are surrounding them. And instead, what we see time and time again in the history of Israel is that they grumbled and complained, even to such an extent that this generation in Deuteronomy is referred to as a twisted and corrupt generation. Now, if you go back to Philippians 2, notice this same language that's used. It's used almost as a warning to us. Do all things, verse 14, without grumbling and complaining, the exact opposite of what Israel had done, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Israel was called to be blameless before God and so be a blessing to the nations around them, but instead in their grumbling, they left a legacy in which They were not able to impact the communities around them. They had an opportunity by living blamelessly before God and before the nations to bless these nations and to transform the communities around them. And instead, by their grumbling and complaining, they left the legacy of being a twisted and corrupt generation. It's so ironic because those are the same uh, kind of language, but it's reversed in this text. And now, actually, uh, we, the church, are called to do the very same thing that Israel is called to do. If you see that in verse uh, 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. See, we're called to do the the same thing as Israel, to do all things without grumbling or complaining and to learn from them. And so change the communities around us. But Israel failed. And now as we're called to do the same thing, our hope is not that we can somehow pull up our bootstraps and somehow just try harder than Israel to not grumble and complain. Our hope is actually in the fact that Jesus Christ has succeeded where Israel had failed. Where we failed, where Israel failed, Jesus Christ has succeeded. Because where Israel was called to be a blameless people and so be a blessing to the nations around them, Jesus Christ has succeeded in actually in fully living a blameless life so that in him all the nations of the earth might be blessed. And that's our hope. And that, that now those of us who are united to Christ by faith can walk in that very same victory of Jesus Christ, in that very same victory. That we can now live faithfully with one another and thereby change the communities around us. And so that's our challenge. Our challenge is to learn from Israel. And that's our hope. Our our hope is to to abide and be united to Christ. And this this is really why it matters. This is why it matters because our faithfulness both to God and with one another in community deeply impacts our effectiveness in living on mission in the world. And so that actually leads to my closing point, why this calling ultimately matters, why it matters that we work out our salvation, why it matters that we live as a community, that we pour ourselves out for community as a grateful people. The reason that it matters 
is because our faithfulness to God and with each other deeply impacts our effectiveness in living on mission in the world. And that's huge because God's heartbeat is for the world. God's desire is that all people would come to know and to love him and to experience the true life that only comes through the life giver himself. But like I, like I said when we began, recognizing that throughout history, oftentimes people have been turned away from God because of the way that we have lived as those who claim to follow God. Many, kind of in the wake of Gandhi, have said, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. And friends, verse 15 says that we are to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's why it matters. Because God has chosen to use those of us who follow him as a means of proclaiming and embodying his gospel to the brokenness and the broken world that we live in and among. Because, look, we haven't been given salvation so that we might just receive and hoard the benefits of salvation to ourselves. We've received salvation so that we might be a blessing, that we might proclaim and embody that very salvation to the people and communities around us in hopes that they might be transformed and changed by the gospel that is still alive today and changes lives. Man, are are we gonna hoard the benefits of salvation like Israel did time and time again? Are we gonna be distracted by by the... by the snares and the cares of this world like Israel did time and time again? Or are we going to realize the joy and the beauty that comes as we give up the cares of the world for the sake of the people of this world? We've been saved by God so that we might find the joy that comes in that. We've been saved so that we might live faithful lives of mission. But ultimately, as I get up here, look, I'd be doing you a disservice if I got up here and I just said, hey guys, go be faithful and go be missional. Come on, go do it. I'd be doing you a disservice because ultimately, the only way that we can actually accomplish the task and the things that we've been talking about tonight is if I point you, is if we fix our eyes and our hearts upon the person of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can be faithful is if we realize that first, Jesus Christ has been faithful in our place. The only way that we can live missional lives where our hearts and our minds and every single possible thing that we do in our lives is wrapped around the mission of God to make himself known. The only way that we can do that is if we realize that Jesus Christ accomplished his mission in coming to make God known and that he's even now continuing that mission through us as he sends his spirit to empower and live and have his presence among us. That's the only way that we can go and live faithful and missional lives. And so that's what I call us to tonight is to fix our heart and our mind upon Jesus. Church, we are called to work out our salvation as a community. 
that pours itself out for the sake of one another and ultimately as a light to the world and the brokenness that is around us. And in so doing, we have that tremendous opportunity to change and transform by the power of the gospel those communities that are around us. And so God, I just pray and ask as we close our time now that by your sovereign forgiveness through the blood of Jesus and that by your empowering grace through the presence of your spirit in and among us, I pray and we ask as a community that you would accomplish that in us, that you would accomplish these things that we have been talking about in us, in this community. God, for your sake, for the sake of your glory and your grace being proclaimed and for the sake of our joy. God, it is for your sake that we pray and that we speak these things. Amen.